When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good afternoon and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno from Real Vision Speaking and it's today, Wednesday, the 21st of December. It's been another great week in global macro, not least due to the decision taken by Bank of Japan yesterday. And today we're going to ask the question whether this decision from Bank of Japan is just a tempest in the teapot. I think that's a British saying, but I guess my guest of the day will get where I am going now. Um, it's great to see you, Darius Dale, the founder of 42 Macro. macro. Andreas, it's great to be here, man. It's the last show of the year. Super excited to, uh, to, be, with the, uh, to be with you all. Darius, this decision taken by Bank of Japan, they obviously moved uh, the trade range for the 10-year bond yield from minus plus 25 basis points to the double. So basically minus uh, to plus 50 basis points instead. And we got a decent move in the Japanese bond space after that decision was taken. What do you make of it in a global context? Yeah, so uh, uh, so it's a lot going on. On. So from our perspective, the BOJ, uh, led by outgoing Governor Haruhiko Komoda, uh, who's going to be um, these his terms up uh, in the spring of next year, um, it's our belief that you know what they're effectively doing is sort of twofold. One, acknowledging the fact that there's been some liquidity, uh, significant deterioration in liquidity in the JGB market, and so allowing for a wider band uh, of trade, wider trading range to account for that. Obviously, the low liquidity tends to have higher realized volatility in prices. But more importantly, I think he's also you know, this guy's 78 years old and he's sort of really the architect of this sort of, you know, massive, forceful, quantitative and qualitative easing that we've seen out of Japan uh, over the last kind of six, seven years. And I think he wants to take a victory lap um, to some degree, right? Um, you got inflation in Japan and when you look at headline, uh, it's running at 3.8% year over year. That's 180 basis points north of the target. You look at their, their the BOJ's target, which is X, uh, um, headline CPI X fresh food at 360 basis or 3.6%, so 160 basis points above the target and so both of those are three sigma moves relative to the long-term time series so uh, he's tipping this cap to himself and saying hey look we, we produced uh the inflation that we uh we've been trying so desperately to produce and so ultimately we can take our foot off the gas from the perspective of maintaining such a tight band and all the kind of you know uh, uh bond purchases that they're likely to have to do to maintain that band so it's a it's a, it's a meaningful step but i'm not so sure it's a material sea change in the bank of japan policy we can unpack that as well yeah, inflation is actually running above target in Japan now. This is truly a macro world upside down. We haven't seen that for many decades. But um, in any case, there is. I wanted to ask you about the ramifications for the U.S. Treasury market. We obviously saw a direct spillover on the day of the decision making of Bank Japan. But today, it seems like the market is calming down again. We've actually seen a slight retracement in in dollar interest rates. We've seen positive equity markets today. So, what do you make of the reaction today relative to yesterday? Yeah, no, I thought the reaction to yesterday sort of led, I think, to the reaction today, which is the toning down of interest rate volatility on the back of the initial move. I thought it was pretty telling yesterday that the BOJ tenure couldn't even get to the 50 basis point uh, upper boundary of that band 
uh, at least in the, in the initial uh, phases of the move. And so in our opinion, you know, there's clearly some demand out there for global sovereign debt securities on the long end as the world heads into uh, what we believe is likely to be a globally coordinated recession uh, commencing at some point in the middle of next year. If we look at the move in FX space, uh, dollar yen moved roughly 4% lower on the back of this decision from Bank of Japan. We've had a slight retracement high again today. But if you look at the dollar move versus the yen, is this significant in a broader setting? Yeah, I think it's very significant. So to me, the FX market is where the, the, all this is taking place in terms of like what the most material changes. Um, uh, Brian, if you thought that slide 12 uh, that we sent you, um, where we show uh, two of our three uh, FX valuation models and and Japan, the Japanese yen, and what we're showing here is nominal effective exchange rates, the European rate of change on the y-axis in both of these charts. On the left axis, on the left chart is our, our monetary impulse model, which shows the year-over-year -year delta in the real interest rate, uh, one-year real interest rate, the y-axis, or the, the x-axis in the right chart is our fiscal impulse model, uh, where we show the deviation from the pre-COVID trend uh, in the sovereign budget balance as a percent of GDP. Um, and as you can see on both charts, Japan being down there at the bottom left of both charts, uh, you know, kind of uh, decently uh, away from the um, the trend line, the regression line in the in the left chart, and very far away from the regression line in the in the right chart. It tells you that the Japanese yen is slightly under, undervalued on a monetary impulse basis and very undervalued on a fiscal impulse basis. And so there's a lot of net short positioning, latent short positioning in the currency market right now uh, that we believe is likely to get unwound uh, in the coming weeks and months as a function of this sort of change uh, with respect to uh, the outlook for BOJ policy. Again, I don't think it's a big change from a monetary policy standpoint, but it can be a big change from the perspective of a currency market that is leaning heavily net short the yen still and in the context of an undervalued currency. I think that is a spot on assessment, uh, Darius. If if we look at um, the ramifications for US Treasury, say one, two quarters ahead, what do you make of a Japanese central bank trying to move the needle upwards on the 10-year point while dollar yen is moving lower, so in the direction of a stronger yen? What does that cocktail tell you about the US bond market? Yeah, so let me, uh, before I answer your question, let me give you some uh, more background on what this policy might look like, you know, a couple of quarters from now. Um, so, you know, we have uh, Governor Kuroda, uh, who's uh, his outgoing governor of Bank of Japan. He's likely to be out of here. He's out of here in the spring. We, we know that. Um, the two uh, gentlemen that are sort of rumored to be in the driver's seat as it relates to replacing a Kuroda, you have the uh, current BOJ governor, um, Masayoshi Amamiya. Um, he's very much on board with the, you know, extreme easing that we've seen uh, in the Kuroda regime. So this is unlikely to be uh, any material change there. Uh, there's also the former BOJ deputy governor, uh, Hiroshi Nakaso, uh, who actually recently authored a book <laughs> about exiting from, you know, the ultra easy monetary policy that we've seen, you know, kind of um, in this corona regime as a function of Abenomics. So um, he would likely represent a material change from the perspective of the forward outlook and in, in Japanese monetary policy. So if we did see, again, this uh, gentleman, Hiroshi Nakoso, uh, Nakoso uh, become the primary candidate to replace Kuroda, we're going to see Japanese rates markets move to price in an even wider band and potentially a higher uh, a, a structural upshift uh, in the yield curve. Um, that, with respect to the treasury market, has significant implications. Obviously, you know, Japan being, you know, kind of one of the, the kind of leading anchors on global sovereign debt yields broadly, um, given the size of its market and then the pricing, um, the pricing in this market, it's very likely that's going to have a material impact on the global treasury market. It's not just treasuries, obviously, German booms, Italian BTPs, et cetera, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the re 
reason we're not so sure that that is likely to be the modal outcome is primarily based on our forecast for the global economy. So uh, we'll start, Brian, if you throw up uh, the U.S. grid model that we have on slide 75, um, you know, so, you know, what we do, I think, really well at 42 Macro, among the things we do well, um, is understanding, you know, kind of the projecting growth and in inflation uh, in delta terms across a variety of economies uh, with, you know, significant accuracy. And our model is suggesting that, you know, by the time you get into the spring of next year, uh, not only the U.S. economy, that's slide 75, uh, slide three, uh, that's the Eurozone, uh, slide four is Japan, and then slide five is the world. You can just uh, flip through them, Brian. You know, all these economies, all these major economies, are going into deeper and deeper deflation. And what we call deflation, that's just a scenario, the condition where the, where the um, growth of dynamics are slowing uh, simultaneously with the inflation dynamics. And so by the time you sort of corrode is leaving, whoever takes his place, whether it be Nicasso or Amamiya, it's very likely they're going to be sort of looking at a world that's A, slower than it is today from a nominal GDP perspective, but also starting to pick up steam to the downside as we head into a globally coordinated recession. It's unlikely that we see a significant amount of tightening out of the Bank of Japan or really any of these central banks uh, beyond that point. I tend to agree, Darius. And uh, one thing I can add is that when the dollar strengthens materially as a consequence of a tight Fed policy and tight dollar liquidity, as we've seen this year, um, foreign um, FX reserves of US dollars also tend to lessen as a consequence of that move in the US dollar. We've seen that in Japan this year as well. They've defended the Japanese yen with the foreign exchange reserve to a certain extent. So if this move from Bank Japan actually pulls the rock from under the trend that we've seen in dollar yen towards a stronger dollar, then it also makes the life easier for Bank of Japan in FX terms. And ultimately that could actually open the door for them to buy US treasuries again. <laughs> what? Don't you have a chart on that? Are you, I saw yeah. one of your charts, man. You have a yeah. chart on this. Yeah, 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 we can pull up chart three on that, Brian, from, from my perspective. I'm, I mean, um, it seems counterintuitive on the surface that you have this um, correlation between holdings of uh, U.S. bonds by Japanese accounts relative to the uh, dollar versus JPY exchange rate. So what we have on the chart here um, is uh, dollar JPY on the left-hand axis on a reversed scale. So every time we go lower, it means that we have a stronger U.S. dollar, and it means that we have fewer holdings of dollar bonds by Japanese accounts. So it is how the correlation works in real life uh, as a consequence of the Japanese central bank being able to build FX reserves or not. Uh, it is the biggest buyer of, uh, of dollar assets by the end of the day. And therefore, it is so important whether the trend is up or down in dollar yen. And I think the trend is down now, which could actually bode pretty well for, for U.S. treasuries into the next year, which seems counterintuitive on the surface, I have to admit that. No, no, I actually don't think it's counterintuitive, right? I mean, there's a, you know, so when the yen is in free fall, you know, obviously it's harder to buy dollar-based assets if the dollar is appreciating. Um, you know, kind of at a rapid pace relative to your base currency, but more importantly, you know, you have a lot of cha you have a lot of um, you know, price pricing headwinds uh, from the perspective of uh, FX um, hedging and currency hedging um, um and instruments. And so, you know, once you reverse all those things, the, you know, the attractiveness of yields on an FX hedge basis become actually quite um, quite 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 uh, quite attractive. And so, uh, that that chart makes a ton of sense. 
Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. We need to look at yields in an FX hedge perspective. So what Japanese accounts like the most is a steep dollar curve. They want the 10-year point to be much higher than the three-month point on the dollar yield curve because that makes it attractive to buy the 10-year point and hedge the FX risk with this three-month interest rate risk as you usually do as an institution, for example, a pension fund. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I uh, wanted to play a soundbite for you, Darius, from our colleague. Uh, Western Nakamura in Tokyo. Uh, his point is that Bank of Japan finally leaves the era of free money, <laughs> as well as all other central banks have done this year. So let's listen to Western uh, and get back to the discussion on the global ramifications of this move from Bank of Japan. What are market participants saying? And how is this, how is this all being received? Well, there's a lot of opinions out there, but by and large, the nearly unanimous perception is simply this is a rate hike. Um, and it's a rate hike in response to rising inflation in Japan. Despite BOJ saying neither this is neither this is neither a rate this is neither a rate hike, nor do they foresee any more of these um widenings of the yield curve control bands, nor that Japan CPI uptrend is going to continue. Um, higher, right? They project CPI to fall back towards 2% in 2023 from above the 3% current. Um, and markets are still saying, nope, rate hike, and it's, go and it's a rate hike due to Japan CPI. Um, and the public market perception goes even further than that, okay? So this is not just a rate hike, or this is not just a not, not rate hike. This is the beginning of the end of this yield curve control experiment, and even further, it's the end of an era globally this is the last major central bank who was left dovish against every other one of their peers with the exception of the always you know kind of idiosyncratic outliers china pboc and turkey's cbrt but you know among the quote you know the, the normal major g5 open economy western capitalist central banks this is the first in slash last out accommodative central bank Finally caving to reality of Japan inflation is now here, it's on the rise, and unsustainable pressure on the yen, and so BOJ is finally, finally capitulating to all of these forces, and the Bank of Japan is now joining the rest of the party, and this is now the official end of an era of free money globally. The entire explainer on what happened in Japan is already available at the Real Vision uh, platform today, and no one is better at unpacking the Japanese action than my colleague Weston in Tokyo. But back to you, Darius. Um, Weston's point is basically that this is the ultimate end of free money globally. Do you agree? Uh, yes and no. So I got an interesting chart on that. So yes, I agree that we're moving in the direction of ending uh, free money, but it's the money's not particularly tight uh, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, particularly when you look at some of these uh, foreign uh, uh, central banks and, and foreign uh, demographies. If you look at uh, a slide, uh, what slide is that? Uh, 73, where we show our 
Taylor rule spreads um, across the different geographies. Um, so in this chart 73, the area under the curve there uh, and then the shaded areas uh, in each of these panels is the, the spread between the one year uh, sovereign interest rate um, on, on a nominal basis minus the Taylor rule estimate for the policy rate for that geography. So the U.S. in the top panel, the Eurozone uh, ECB in the second panel, the U.K. and the Bank of England in the third panel, and then Japan and the and the uh, and the uh, the BOJ uh, in the fourth panel. And as you can see, you know, even inclusive of all the policy rate tightening that is priced into those current uh, sovereign debt curves over the next year, we're still talking about a minus 518 basis point spread for the Fed. We're talking about a minus 867 basis point spread for the Eurozone, for the ECB, a minus 1,008 basis point spread for the UK, and a minus 432 basis point spread uh, for, for the BOJ. So uh, money is still quite easy relative to this you know, big structural inflation shock. Uh, and in our opinion, at least according to our research, 42 Macro, um, the regime, the structural regime change we've seen, uh, we've observed and continue to observe from a labor market and inflation standpoint in a lot of these geographies. And so ultimately, it's they're going to have to pick their poison next year, right? I mean, you're going to have to decide whether you want to, you know, protect the economy and 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 sort of you know migrate towards um you know kind of um you know, mitigating the left tail uh, with respect to labor market outcomes, uh, which obviously would you know kind of fan the right tail of inflation outcomes, or vice versa. You know, you want to cut off the right tail of inflation outcomes uh, and sacrifice the you know kind of um you know the left tail of, of labor market outcomes um you know, to, to the, uh, in that process. And so it's our belief. Um, that based on the Fed's guidance relative to the ECB's guidance and the Bank of England's guidance is that the Fed is likely to be the one that's going to prove itself most hawkish in 2023, certainly relative to current pricing and, and asset market and, and, and money markets. There is, we can certainly use this chart as sort of a springboard to a discussion on the FX outlook into 2023. Um, mm -hmm. One thing is that we currently see a weakening trend in the US dollar versus both the Euro the sterling and the Japanese yen. But I think if we look a bit beneath the surface, we have different positioning data across the currencies that we discussed, right? So the Japanese yen is very short, but it's not necessarily the case for the euro and the sterling. I know you have some views on that. Yeah, absolutely. So the euro, um, and I don't think I have a chart on this, but just off the top of my head, so the euro, one thing we track on a weekly basis in the CFTC data, I think you do as well, is the um, the non-commercial net length as a percent of total open interest? Um, so the euro positioning, and I think, is at a, a plus seventeen percent, which is a, a seventeen percent net long position uh, uh, in that in that in the currency. That's on a hundred percentile basis um, um, with respect to the last year, and I think it's in like the seventy seventh or eightieth percentile on an all-time basis with data going back to I think nineteen ninety five. And so the market is extremely long the euro and extreme and, and betting on sort of Lagarde, Christine, Madame Lagarde and her colleagues resolve in a way that they're not so willing to do with respect to the Fed. You have about, you know, two, two, you know, two rate cuts priced into the Fed by the end of the next year, while at the same time we have, you know, let's call it 105 or six rate hikes priced into uh, the ECB curve in terms of OIS overnight index swap markets. You know, the spread between those two, you know, roughly around 170 basis points or so is at an all-time high. Um, spread on a two-year forward basis, I want to say it's like, you know, 200 plus basis points, which is also in an all-time high. So the currency markets, money markets in particular, have never been more convinced that the ECB is going to be more hawkish than the Fed on a relative basis over the next one to two years. And that's obviously very much reflected uh, in the positioning data that we see. So it's our belief uh, that the correction that we're seeing in the, in the in the dollar relative to the euro uh, is likely long in the tooth. 
Now, again, currency markets are, you know, they're not all going to trade in the same uniform fashion that we've observed throughout the last kind of 12 to 18 months. Uh, you're going to see more dispersion, and I think you're going to see strong yen, perhaps even strong uh, 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 Swiss franc as you get further into 2023 vis-a-vis -vis versus uh, maybe weak dollar or weak euro, weak British pound versus the dollar. Rate hikes from the European Central Bank while the Federal Reserve caught rates. Um, that's an interesting mix. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that can only there. happen that's, if Christine Lagarde is asleep at the wheel. <laughs> yeah, that's happened two times, 08 and 2011, and how'd that end up for Europe? Um, let's put it like this. <laughs> Thumbs down. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I, I've noticed this as well. Uh, and the only thing I can use to defend the current positioning of markets that the ECB can hike for longer and that the euro will gain versus the US dollar is that the inflation picture in Europe tends to lack the inflation picture in the US by a couple of quarters. So it will probably take another say three to four months before the European Central Bank actually realizes that inflation is also heading lower in the Eurozone. But um, ultimately, I perfectly agree with your take that this is a, a tremendous setup to short the Euro versus the dollar. And uh, that leads me to talk a bit about 2023, Darius. Yeah, please uh, chip in. Oh, yeah, I just had one, one quick thing. Uh, I think you're, you're spot on with respect to the lag uh, in core inflation dynamics in Europe relative to the U.S., uh, but one thing I think is different as of last Wednesday is the Fed pivoted. You know, the Fed pivoted to you know an incrementally hawkish stance by upgrading the labor market in its reaction function and downgrading inflation. And so now we're no longer comparing you know in core inflation dynamics to core inflation dynamics on an apples to apples basis. It's now apples to oranges. And so just I have a few charts uh, just to quickly go through on on the labor market in the U.S. to remind everyone this is what matters. And so on slide 19, uh, where we show uh, this, this sort of post-COVID reduction in labor supply, which is careers and police increasingly permanent. The top panel shows the employment to population ratio. Uh, the second panel shows the labor force participation rate. Uh, the third panel is the labor force participation rate for 55 plus year olds. And the bottom panel was the labor force participation rate for females here in the U.S. And we're down 130 to 160 basis points. Um, you know, pick your pick your indicator, um, 130 on the headline uh, numbers. And uh, if you check that over to the slide, um, to slide 20, where we show sort of, um, you know, kind of our, 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 our composite of uh, private sector uh, labor income, uh, which takes, it was the product of, you know, private sector employment, um, you know, we'll be looking at the mean of payrolls growth in the, in the private sector between the household and payroll surveys to account for the fact that there's a lot of dispersion um, in those, in those two statistics at the current juncture, private sector, average hourly earnings, private sector, uh, average weekly hours. And you're talking about, you know, private sector labor income as of November, is growing at 6.6% on a three-month annualized basis, which is 50% higher than the pre-COVID trend. And so now the Fed is basically up the ante on the statistics that it's looking at to guide its reaction functions. So that, in our opinion, you know, I think the market is sort of thinking, hey, look, the ECB is just, I don't know, three quarters behind the Fed in terms of all the tightening that it has to do. Well, the Fed actually just kind of put an additional lag on itself. So maybe the ECB is only one quarter behind when you factor in uh, this lag. That's a really fair point, Darius. Uh, I wanted to move the discussion towards the outlook for 2023, and uh, please keep the questions coming out there. Uh, we have a bunch of questions coming already, but um, this is the last time you uh, get the chance to uh, ask Darius a question, at least on Real Vision, uh, before New Year's. Um, so, Darius, 2023, from a big picture macro perspective, what are going to be the major trends that you're watching? Oh, great question. Um, you know, so this has uh, been the focal point of our research for the past few months. 
is trying to identify the timing associated with the end of the phase one liquidity cycle downturn that we are already in, um, that we all sort of observing ourselves. That's, you know, caused a lot of pain for a lot of investor portfolios. You got the S&P 500 down 19% year to date. The Nasdaq's down 31%. TLT's down 30. Bitcoin down 63. Ethereum down 67. And that was all, all, in our opinion, at least according to our research, due to the phase one liquidity cycle downturn. Bear markets always have two phases, or at least the ones that are associated with recessions. Not all bear markets are associated with recessions, but the ones that are, and we obviously believe that they're likely to be a recession uh, at some point commencing in the next 12-month time horizon, both U.S. and global, there's going to be a phase two, which is uh, the credit cycle downturn, uh, the, you know, the, the, the pricing in of the actual recession. In fact, uh, we have a great chart on this on slide 66, Brian, uh, where we show that the you know markets, asset markets have not priced in that phase one, that phase two yet. Um, and so what we show here in this chart is the, in the first panel, uh, the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index. The second panel, we show the S&P 500's uh, next 12 months earnings yield. Uh, so earnings divided by the um, uh, price. And then the third panels, then U.S. dollar investment grade credit uh, uh, overnight, or sorry, uh, sorry <laughs> option adjusted spreads. And then lastly, the high beta, low beta ratio uh, for securities in the S&P 500. And as you can see, based on those dotted lines, which correspond to the peak and or trough of the 2001 recession, 1991 recession, uh, 1999 recession, and the global financial crisis, and ultimately the mean of those three peaks and troughs, we are nowhere near pricing in a recession through a variety of key financial metrics. Um, and so it's our opinion um, that phase two, which is yet to begin, is ultimately going to be the, the kind of the final leg down, that second leg down phenomenon that we always talk about in financial markets. So going back to answer your question really succinctly, it's our the number one thing we're focused on in our research is trying to identify whether or not phase one and phase two are spaced apart. If phase one ends, let's say, you know, kind of Q1 of next year, and, you know, the recession doesn't start into Q4, you could have a multi-month or even multi-quarter period of time for asset markets to reprice higher and kind of crush a lot of this sort of latent short positioning before that markets have to price in, begin pricing in phase two. If, however, the recession starts sooner, uh, which is, again, a lot of the focus of a lot of our research here for to macro, if it starts sooner, both domestically and globally, you might actually have phase one and phase two bumped up close to each other, which means you're you're going to begin pricing in the phase two credit cycle portion of the bear market, you know, from the lows of the phase one portion. So, um, you know, just in terms of valuation work, and I know it's a long-winded answer, but I think it's a worthwhile answer. Um, if you go to uh, slide 38, Brian, where we show uh, the S&P 500's uh, price to next 12 months earnings ratio, far back as we can get the data, you know, so we're, you know, I think we're somewhere around 18-ish, uh, 18 times-ish. You know, to get back to a median price to next 12 months earnings ratio, you're talking about 3,600 on the S&P. That makes sense in the context of the phase one liquidity cycle downturn. If you go to slide 41, Brian, this, these are, and by the way, these are all charts from our December macro scouting report. Um, we put out a presentation like this every month for, our, for us, for our members of 42 Macro. The, if you look at on a price to next 12 months sales basis, you know, we're talking about going on down to you know, 2,800. That's the kind of price level we would target if phase one and phase two were, were back to back. Uh, if they're spaced out, you might go to 3,600, rallying back to 4,100, and ultimately get down to 3,600, 3,500 again. But if, it's, if they're close together, you know, then you're talking about something sub 3,000 on the S&P. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Darius, we get a bunch of questions on the ramifications of the potential government spending bill. We got the news yesterday about a 1.7 trillion package uh, from the US administration again, and a potential timing of that um, bill in Q1 next year. Is that something that could alter this recession picture for next year? Uh, yeah, uh, I have to do more work on that, so I don't want to give a, a, a I don't want to speak out of, out of turn with respect mm -hmm. to the answer. We, we've already known that we were going to see more spending in the U.S., and at least with respect to the phase one liquidity cycle downturn, it's going to cause it to be worse. Uh, we're going to see, an, obviously, an increase in treasury supply. Um, if, if, obviously, if they get that spending bill passed, it's going to be in conjunction uh, with a, with an increase in the debt ceiling. Um, and so we're going to start to see, um, more than likely start to see an increase in the Treasury General account balance as well, which would be a direct drag on net liquidity. Um, so that, in our opinion, at least in the early part of next year, it's not so great. Um, obviously, if they get through 1.7 trillion spending, and that's a significant delta relative to what we saw in, in fiscal 2022, uh, then that would be positive and potentially could stave off, um, you know, the pricing in phase two and ultimately the, t the timing of a recession you know, into, you know, late 2024, maybe, or so late 2023, or maybe even early 2024. I don't know, I have to actually get the, 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 the numbers on that. Yeah. Um, within this bill, we have more aid for Ukraine, uh, emergency disaster assistance, um, a, another package for the Medigate, um, and so on. So, it, I mean, it's a broad range of initiatives, and not all are uh, clearly linked to 2023 and not all are clearly linked to U.S. soil. I would just add that. Um, but um, let's get to the next question because um, Paul, one of our loyal members, asks a great, great question ahead of 2023. Goldman Sachs published a um, 2023 outlook labeling commodities as the best asset class to position in ahead of the year. And um, they also look for... Um, Brent crude at $105 a barrel already during Q1. What do you make of that outlook from Goldman Sachs? Uh, I think it's reasonable in the context of, you know, something we have not talked about yet, which is, you know, the kind of China reopening thing, which in my opinion, you know, I think we, we've done a good job of, of, of helping investors contextualize the fact that, hey, look, China reopening is not this immediate positive signal. Right, you're going to go from no one having COVID in China to one billion people having COVID. So that's obviously not a positive shock to growth in this very near term. Uh, but also in the context of this phase one liquidity cycle downturn that we're in, that obviously is being perpetuated by the Fed, the ECB, the BOJ, the Bank of England, other central banks as well, because China, you know, kind of is a victim of the impossible trinity of macroeconomics. You know, they really do have to import a lot of uh, monetary policy, U.S. dollar monetary policy from abroad. And so we've seen uh, some some reasonable uh, reasonable degree of tightening um, when you look at um, you know, the fluctuations in three-month uh, Chinese um, capital outflows, et cetera, in recent months. And as a function of the, that tightening we've seen, uh, we've seen a negative inflection in the Chinese credit impulse, which ultimately is a leading indicator for Chinese growth. We saw some pretty rancid numbers in the month of November, and obviously we expect that to continue 
uh, throughout the next at least a couple months. Um, but when you get into you know late late Q1, maybe even early Q2, uh, you're going to see a Chinese economy that looks a little bit different. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily say markedly different, but certainly should look uh, delta positive relative to where it is today. And that's positive for commodities. I want to say China's um, crude oil imports are tracking down about 12 percent ish. Uh, so from the highs, copper imports are you know down about you know. 15 15, 20% from their highs. So this is a Chinese economy that just hasn't really moved from a commuting and traveling perspective. And probably and as a function of the tightening we've seen uh, in the real estate market over the last two to three years, uh, probably has not been building as much as they used to as well. So uh, I can see the commodity story really kind of, you know, catching, um, you know, catching hold after a pretty significant correction uh, in 2023. But I wouldn't necessarily put it atop your, your best place to be um, from a risk, certainly not from a risk adjusted basis. Risk adjusted, I mean, it's going to be hard to beat you know, four or five percent yields on on T bills and mm. and maybe even the long bond at some point starting in maybe second or third quarter. Yeah, tend to agree, Darius. Uh, and finally, I wanted to pass on the greetings from uh, one of our listeners, Mr. Wonder. He is um, writing here, Darius and Dress. Thank you for everything you do to help us all. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And uh, I can only say, likewise, Mr. Wonder. Uh, I hope you get a great holiday season with the, uh, your family. Uh, Darius, a great pleasure to host you uh, once again. Um, to sum up today's discussion, even if Bank of Japan's decision to move the needle in the yield curve control is not a nothing burger, it is not necessarily a bad thing for U.S. Treasuries. I think we, the two of us agree on that. Um, and that's at least one of the trends that we need to watch into 2023, whether the U.S. Treasury market starts performing as a consequence of the global trends that we see in macro. And otherwise, what you need to watch in 2023 is the timing of the actual recession, because that will dictate a lot of your asset allocation. Is that right, Darius? Yes. Absolutely, man. That's a great summary, man. And, and if I can just leave you before your uh, your faunted meme, which I <laughs> laughed out loud when I saw it in my email earlier. <laughs> I rarely, most people don't laugh out loud when they say LOL. I actually did LOL. That was, that was good. But uh, before we even get there, I just want to say thank you um, to everyone viewing. Everyone's watched these programs all throughout the year. Um, it's been a fantastic opportunity to educate and help you know, kind of, um, you know, grow the, the acumen and intellect and ultimately the trading ability of, of the global audience. And, and I just want to say thank you, man, for uh, for hosting uh, your wonderful host, Brian, Nick, you guys have been fantastic on the control board, Claire, et cetera, uh, Maggie, Wesson, you know, and obviously a big thanks to, to Rao Paul. I mean, the, the guy takes way too much flack on Twitter. Uh, there was a time in my career, which wasn't very long ago, where institutional world-class research, macro and otherwise, was simply not available broadly. You just you just couldn't get access to it. And Ralph Paul, uh, you know, when I don't land, God's made millions and millions and millions of dollars from Man Group, one of the best hedge funds in the world, and actually say, you know what? I think there's an opportunity here to educate the masses. And guess what? He's doing that. And I'm very grateful to you know contribute to his vision. And, and just want to say thank you, Ralph, and thank you everyone to Robin. Word, Darius, thank you very much. Um, and best wishes for the holidays to you and your family as well. I wanted to conclude today's discussion with a meme as always. Um, and this time it's a cat meme. Stop what you're doing. The JTP curve is moving 10 basis points. And I mean, that's all. That's what I always find hilarious about moves in Japan. They are so tiny in comparison to what we've seen in the US and Europe throughout this year. But as soon as the Japanese curve moves 10 basis points, we all stop 
what we're doing for some reason. But um, in any case, it's not a nothing burger, but it may not be bad news for the US Treasury market. I'm Andreas Steno. Thank you very much for watching The Daily Briefing. See you again tomorrow. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to The Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.